Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Jan Orman and I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet today. I'm a GP with a special interest in mental health and I host a series of webinars for Black Dog Institute's arm of the e-mental health in practice project. In webinar 40, we turned the spotlight on ourselves as practitioners and looked at how we're doing and what we need to do to look after our own well-being in these difficult times. Our self-care message was triggered by COVID, of course, but it extends beyond the pandemic. We hope there's something in this conversation that you'll find helpful. With me today, I have Jessica Strudwick, who is a psychologist and researcher in the workplace mental health team at Black Dog Institute, where she's involved in a range of projects investigating the mental health and well-being of healthcare professionals. I also have as a guest Dr. Carol Newell, who is a clinical psychologist and part of my team. That's the professional education team at the Black Dog Institute. She's got a PhD in behavioural neuroscience, a special interest in anxiety and depression in children and adults, and having left academia recently, she's now in private practice in northern Sydney. And to complete the team, I have Dr. Jocelyn Lowinger a medical graduate and former GP who has an MSc in coaching psychology and she currently works coaching members of the medical profession in terms of their career choices and personal development. Jocelyn began the conversation by telling us about a rather relevant book she'd come upon recently called The Psychiatry of Pandemics. There's a book that was posted in one of my the medical first book groups right at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was very prescient of the authors. They published it in 2019. Um, And it's got 12 chapters that runs right from the history of pandemics, such as the plague, Ebola, swine flu, that, you know, in more recent years, and talks about, uh, highlights the fact that mental health conditions is a feature of every pandemic. So it's almost inherent part of the pandemic. We've been seeing these mental health issues right across the community. What struck me was that it's pretty textbook. It's a textbook response in, in terms of the public health response and it's a textbook response in terms of the mental health responses and all the financial impacts. It seems to be that this is what happens to the world in pandemics. We polled our health professional audience and found that they agreed that the biggest impacts for them personally had been social followed closely by professional and financial. This, I guess, is not unlike the rest of the population. On the 22nd of April, the COVID Monitor Project released the results of a poll of 2,297 Australians. It showed that in the month from mid-March to mid-April, twice as many Australians were reporting poor mental health than in the previous month, and three times as many were reporting frequent feelings of despair. Although there was no current data for this pandemic available at the time of the webinar, Jess was able to tell us what her team's research was saying about the impact of past pandemics on health professionals. How likely is it, Jess, that health professionals will experience adverse mental health consequences of the pandemic? Are we going to be worse off than people in the general population? 
I would say so, but it would vary with um, the degree of exposure. We've reviewed and meta-analysed the literature from past pandemics, as well as some early data from the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, We looked at studies that investigated mental health outcomes in healthcare workers. So healthcare workers here typically include nurses, doctors and hospital admin staff, so more hospital-based. Um, And so here, our search identified 67 articles that looked at the mental health of over 55,000 healthcare workers spanning across 12 different countries and in relation to five different pandemics. Um, And so when we pull all the data available from these studies, we found um, that up to 49.5% of healthcare workers reported significant psychological distress during um, that acute pandemic period. Um, And then when we look at the data that's available for longer term outcomes, so that involves six to 36 months after the resolution of a pandemic, we see that 11.7% or around that one in 10 mark are reporting symptoms that would indicate PTSD. What constituted that 50% of acute reactions? Yep, so typically that's measured through um, measures like the general health questionnaire or the DAS, so things like that. So there is an element of anxiety and stress in there, but also sort of generalised depression, feelings of hopelessness, those sort of things. What about substances? Not many studies looked at substance use in relation to pandemics. There was only one that we identified and they found quite a low rate of substance use at 6%. However, that study also collected data three years after the resolution of the SARS pandemic. And it was shown that healthcare workers who reported more um, post-traumatic stress-like symptoms also reported more um, alcohol use symptoms. I asked Carol and Jocelyn how all this was playing out in their clinical practices. I think, you know, when you choose to be in a caring profession, um, we have a real chance of being burnt out because, you know, even when we're feeling quite stressed in that same situation with COVID-19, those in Australia, you know, that real pivot into telehealth and Medicare issues as well, we were also feeling really stressed, but, you know, we often... Um, prioritize our clients first and you know it's really hard to take that day off to you know say look I need to take some time to take care of myself because we always want to put them first I think that we are going to be in danger of burnout if not now then very soon as people emerge from restrictions and they're starting to come in um, for mental health support yeah and can I just add to that Jan what a lot of people are saying in the chat box and that I've seen a lot as well and experienced myself is that feeling of helplessness that you have skills to help but perhaps no actual capacity to do that because you've lost your job or a lot of GPs are finding that the patients aren't coming in so all of a sudden there's no work and no one ever in general practice ever thought that would ever be a possibility and all of a sudden Mm. there's practices closing So it's kind of this really polarised space between people who are overwhelmed and overworked and people who are underworked. And I don't know which one's more stressful. I think they're both incredibly tough positions to be in. Jess is in an excellent position to tell us what the research says about preventing mental health problems in health professionals under these difficult circumstances. 
So our review identified a range of factors that are protective against mental ill health. So these include supportive and flexible work environments, um, provision of breaks and reasonable shift arrangements, time off if it's required, um, and also adequate training and confidence in infection control measures, which is, of course, um, facilitated by provision of good quality personal protective equipment. Um, and given that we have that sort of statistic of the one in 10 longer term PTSD outcomes, um, we can look at other groups of workers who show similar statistics, so groups like first responders or military personnel, um, and we can learn, uh, we can use the lessons learnt from research with these groups. So in these groups, we find that the best mental health prevention interventions are not necessarily mental health interventions per se, but they're more so targeted at um, practical or organisational factors. So we know for, from some research in military personnel that um, confidence in pre-deployment training and preparation procedures is a really strong predictor of preventing PTSD post-deployment. So in applying that to healthcare workers, um, prevention's targeted at, um, by, by providing training, um, support and personal protective equipment is of the utmost importance here. Um, but if we did want to comment on something that could be effective at the individual level, um, we need to sort of say that the anxiety or distress around the COVID-19 pandemic is understandable and may not be necessarily pathological. So therefore, it doesn't need to be fixed or treated. But um, some healthcare workers experiencing that distress may benefit from the provision of some practical coping skills to manage their distress. Um, and that could be in the form of wellness interventions or mindfulness exercises. There was significant concordance between these research recommendations and what Jocelyn had to say. Some other points that came out in the book for me was that communication is an intervention all on its own and the more clearly um, organisations and governments can communicate with people about what's happening, why it's happening and timeframes around it's happening, what's happening with policies and procedures, the better off it's going to be because it eases some of that confusion and lack of knowledge. And peer support, the ability to just talk to each other without necessarily any intervention but just be able to talk share feelings share experiences even like what's happening in this chat box was seen as a very supportive and helpful and protective factor and the book also covered individual characteristics such as having a supportive family and either strong spiritual beliefs or a spiritual practice such as mindfulness or religious beliefs was protective and personal coping styles like um, coping with humor or having more of an active coping strategy were also beneficial. Although there's a lot of talk about self-care at the moment, we thought it might be a good idea to have a conversation about what constitutes good self-care. We all know that good exercise, nutrition, sleep, mindfulness, gratitude, fun and keeping work at work work very well in terms of self-care. But I think the two on either end that bookend the list are really important in the current circumstances. Staying informed and limiting misinformation. People have already been talking in the chat box about conspiracies and misinformation. And I think that, that that's an important part of our self-care. One of my colleagues says that the first thing she did when she um, realised we were in trouble was to get as much information as she possibly could. But misinformation is also a problem, isn't it, Carol? 
think so too, you know. I think um, a lot of the stress that I'm seeing, not only among my clients, but also, you know, among health professionals is just being bombarded um, with a lot of social media news. And you can get a lot of news in one day, right? And so, you know, some of the recommendations would be to stick to, you know, your trusted sources. And I kind of stick to the five that I typically um, check in on. There was one weekend where I just turned off my phone (laughs) and it was one of the most productive and relaxed weekend that I had that allowed me to keep going um, when I hit Monday. So, you know, we have to be really wary of misinformation that's out there and getting too much social media information um, online. We can be both misinformed and over-informed, can't we? So we have to be very discriminating about our sources of information. What about self-compassion? What do I mean by that? Jocelyn, tell me what you think the self-compassion is all about. Well, I could give you the textbook answer, which is essentially self-compassion is a feeling of a shared human experience in the face of adversity and and having some mindfulness and caring for yourself in the same way that you might care for a close friend in in a given situation so it's about some kind of self-love and self-soothing and recognizing that this is actually really really hard like this is enormously hard and of course i'm having uncomfortable emotions and distress and whatever else is happening for me because this is bloody awful um and so that to me is self-compassion you know, self-compassion is really the foundation for being able to do all the other things, right, on our list, the exercise, the nutrition, the sleep. It's about putting a little bit of ourselves first, right, so that we can um, provide that service to the people who need us. Um, and so I think self-compassion is extremely important um, in this time. How much should we lean on our family and friends? Is in, and is there a point where that leaning is too much? Carol, what have you got to say about that? Well, I do appreciate family and friends. I think if you can use them to sort of um, take a break from work, that's really terrific. But I, I sometimes wonder whether we have certain individuals that we get together with and we co-ruminate. That is, you know, we go over the stressful and the negative stuff over and over again without any real problem solving. Um, And especially when you're kind of leaning in on your family and friends to be your psychologist and your functioning is really declining and, you know, that irritability and that interpersonal problem starts arising, you know, it's time to keep an eye on whether it's, it's time to speak to a professional. For me, it's coming up with those feelings of intense frustration and snappiness at the slightest little issue is just that those conversations are not helpful any Mm. longer and I think Carol mentioned in the conversation we had earlier about feeling that you're no longer functioning and that your friends and family do not understand you I think there's a time when you need to actually speak to somebody who's got training. There are times when we can't lean on our family and friends and we need something more. And peer support is certainly something that we probably all value. We can't get it in the tea room anymore. We can't go to a coffee shop with one of our colleagues and download about our stresses. We can have informal online meetings with our colleagues and that's to be recommended. I've certainly been doing that with my peer support group that I've been meeting with for a long time in the last little while. And you can also um, engage in formal peer support if you wish. I'm running a 
peer support group for GPs through the MPRAC project at the moment, and we're hoping to have more support groups like that. We're going to start one for um, a multidisciplinary group, and if there's enough interest, we'll be doing more of that as time goes by. Violent groups appeal to some people, and the other place for at the moment that I'd like to talk about, and we'll talk about it in detail in a minute, is Hand in Hand, who run peer support groups. I think that talking to people in groups in a facilitated safe space is enormously helpful. At some point, some of us are going to need professional help. So how do we know if we need professional help? Jocelyn, is this a silly question to ask an audience of mostly mental health professionals, but certainly all our health professionals? Is it a silly question? Do we I always think, know? Well, actually, my personal opinion is it's an awesome question. And my confession is, yes, I work with doctors. I've been talking with lots and lots of doctors. And then it occurred to me one day that actually... Why haven't I spoken to my own GP? So that day I made an appointment and said, I think I need to check in with you about me because I'm helping all these other people, but there's no point if I'm unsupported in doing that. So, yeah, I think we all need to be reflective and asking ourselves, honestly, how am I coping? What's going on for me? And, you know, is this realistically a good time for me to be seeking professional help, I think is really useful. I'd like to recommend the online clinic that Black Dog Institute have. It's a, a free service. You can use it anonymously. Everyone's anonymous. And what it does is provides to the entire community, not just health professionals, the opportunity to do a suite of online instruments, psychological instruments, to help determine whether the user actually is just experiencing what's normal for now or whether they have levels of stress, anxiety, depression, alcohol consumption, hypomania, whatever, whatever, that uh, warrants uh, professional intervention. So that's an excellent uh, uh, resource to know about. The online clinic is available to everyone and uh, it's certainly something that might be useful for health professionals to use um, in determining whether they need to seek some professional help. We checked with our live audience to find out what the barriers to seeking professional help might be for them personally. 49% of you have a belief that you should be able to manage things yourself. That's interesting, isn't it? 34% of you share my fear of embarrassment and being judged. And there's an even spread across all the other things. Let's go down and look at fear of mandatory reporting. 18% of you are afraid of mandatory reporting and 13% concerned about uh, triggering psychologically labelled Medicare item numbers. Lots and lots of barriers that stop us from seeking help. You know, we really need to lead by example um, and model self-care and be able to seek our own professional help and support because I think it's very different uh, knowing how to do it ourselves and having somebody who is advocating for our health, having to answer to a psychologist, you know, have I been doing my homework, you know, that session. So I think it's really, really important um, to seek that support. And not only that, there's such a benefit to watching another professional work. You know, we don't, really get much of a chance after we leave uni um, to actually watch somebody else in our profession 
work, you know, and see their practices. So I think it's a double benefit. We get somebody taking care and helping us with our well-being, but also we get to see another psych or another GP work in, in this field. It's fantastic. Can I recommend that if you feel that you need help, that one of the best places to go is your GP? Now, I may be slightly biased with that um, recommendation, but don't forget that many GPs are interested in and able to help you with your stressors, even if you do happen to be a health practitioner yourself. You also might like to go refer yourself to a private psychologist or allied mental health provider. This is a possibility too. But I want to ask you, Carol, whether you feel that talking to your supervisor or coach is an appropriate thing to do when you as a health practitioner are feeling distressed, personally distressed. Um, I think that's a really fine line. So when I'm supervising students, either in research or clinical, I'm very careful to sort of draw a line. I'm there to provide, you know, mentoring in terms of that work-life balance and happy to discuss some of the stress they're feeling around the project or around a particular client case or just generally the workload. Um, and stress, of course, is not, you know, a mental health disorder. But once I start to see this functioning that's really declining and it's veering to things like depression and anxiety, I want them to be able to seek their own psychologists, you know, because they're going to get that treatment intervention um, framework, which I don't want to deliver as a supervisor. I'm really there to mentor them in terms of their career progression or the current project that I'm working on. So I think that's a, that really, really fine line um, that we don't want to cross um, in psychology anyway for me, from a supervisor to then becoming someone's clinical psychologist, which is actually a whole other framework, right, in terms of that relationship. As a coach, I have specific things that I work with people about and coaching can be therapeutic, but its intention is not therapy. So when I see people, you know, I've had some clients with emerging eating disorders or, you know, even prodromal, worried about prodromes to psychotic episodes so when I see anything that's raising red flags for me I refer to back to GPs and back to psychology because it's not my role to be doing therapy so very similar to Carol. We talked about the value of employee assistant programs, personal support provided by the indemnity insurers and about the peer support offered by the Hand in Hand Network. Dr. Tani Brightson is the founder of the Hand in Hand Peer Support Network. Um, it, the executive include, team includes some luminous names, uh, including that of Professor Patrick McGuire, who met Tani when she was um, providing a wellness week for her fellow residents at Cairns Hospital last year. And out of that whole wellness uh, endeavour arose hand in hand, which is something that Tani will tell you more about uh, in a moment. Thank you, Jan, for inviting me to be a part of this webinar. So my name is Tani and I'm a stage one psychiatry registrar and the founding member of Hand in Hand, which stands for Helping Australia, New Zealand Nurses and Doctors. Our team also includes a host of mental health experts, as you can see, and more recently, we've been able to partner with the Black Dog Institute, which is a really exciting step forward. 
So Hand in Hand is a free preclinical service that's entirely volunteer based. We're not a treatment service, there's no Medicare billing and there's no record on healthcare workers' uh, health record and it's based entirely on peer-to-peer -peer support. So to become involved in this, healthcare workers self-refer um, and then they're taken to a triage service. So we have a retired psychiatrist who performs a triage and ensures that they're suitable for peer support. If there's any indication that they might need some additional input, then they provide information on where they can and how they can receive this. Once they are deemed appropriate for peer support, there's another arm where those where other healthcare practitioners can volunteer to provide peer support. They undergo a screening process to ensure that they do have the skills necessary. And then we begin the linking process um, and connecting peers in with peers based on their preferences. Don't forget that Hand in Hand is for all health professionals, not just doctors and nurses. Hand in Hand don't have a website yet, but you can find a direct link to the network via the 10 page of the Black Dog Institute website. 10 is short for the essential network. Some six weeks ago, the federal government asked organisation for tenders to provide a, a, a resource for all health professionals. 10 provides direct links to a variety of resources specifically designed to support people during COVID-19. It also provides links to the Black Dog Institute's online clinic that we discussed earlier, to peer support via Hand in Hand, to online treatment via This Way Up, to face-to-face -to -face treatment via the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, and to emergency helplines. As 10 evolves, more services will be added. The really good news is that on or before June the 1st, the 10 app will be launched, providing health professionals with links to a comprehensive range of services via their smartphones. There are quite a few other services to choose from as well. For doctors, these include the Doctors' Health Advisory Services and Helplines in each state, the Doctors for Doctors organisation, the network known as the Doctors' Clinic, run by Dr Louise Stone, which matches doctors seeking help with GPs with high-level mental health skills. Mentate, which is a psychiatrist-run organisation providing support for doctors. And of course, Jocelyn's organisation, which is called Coach GP. Carol mentioned that there's excellent psychologist-specific support available from the Australian Psychological Association and the Australian Clinical Psychologists Association. And there's an invitation-only Facebook group called Psychologists and All That. If you're looking for online support, don't forget the federal government's Head to Health website, which is an excellent portal to all the evidence-based Australian-made online mental health resources with a special section for COVID-19 support. Last but by no means least, there's the Black Dog Institute's online mental health community of practice. All you need to join is an APRA number. Membership gives you access to great discussions about mental health involving a multidisciplinary group of your peers. I hope this podcast has been useful for you. If you've found something in it distressing, please contact your usual support person or lifeline on 131114. Thanks for listening.